Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE is a catalyst for change in the engineering industry, and one of the biggest ways we inspire that change is through our annual SWE Conference for Women Engineers and Technologists. This year's conference, WE21 in Indianapolis, Indiana, will help attendees at all ages and stages learn, connect, and grow. Join us for three days of networking and relationship building, over 250 professional development sessions, three inspirational keynotes, and a career fair featuring more than 300 exhibitors. Let's aspire to inspire at WE21, October 21st through the 23rd. Head to we21.swe.org for more info and to register. Hi. My name is Alexa Jacob, I use she and they pronouns, and I lead the LGBTQ plus and allies affinity group of the Society of Women Engineers. Welcome to SWE's diverse podcast series. Please remember to add this podcast to your iTunes and like or follow us on social media. Visit SWE.org for more details. I'm joined today by Dr. Andrea Haverkamp, she, her, or they, them pronouns. She's an organizer at the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 21 in Washington State. Dr. Haverkamp completed her PhD in environmental engineering, a doctoral minor in queer studies at Oregon State University this spring. Her research centers the community support and navigation strategies of transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming students finding success in engineering and computer science. In the broader engineering community, Dr. Haverkamp serves on the editorial board of the International Journal of Engineering, Social Justice, and Peace an open source publication exploring the intersections of engineering and inequity across the globe. Before her PhD, Dr. Haverkamp worked as an engineer with the US Army Corps of Engineers, the US Air Force, and served as a science teacher with the Peace Corps in Liberia. Dr. Haverkamp is proud to be a queer, sapphic, gender nonconforming woman. So thank you for joining us today, Dr. Haverkamp. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. Awesome. So I wanted to first ask, how did you get interested in engineering and what sparked or inspired your interest in STEM? Well, as a kid, I had so many interests. Uh, one of my first interests was bugs. <laughs> and uh, in high school, I really loved acting. I loved music. I played trumpet. I also really loved computers. I grew up with this Windows 95 computer that our dad bought, and I was just glued to it. And so for a while, I thought I would do programming or maybe I would do acting, right? There's just so many things out there to do. But at the end of the day, I looked at them all and I said, chemical engineering looks like it has some programming. And I continued to play music on the side while I uh, studied chemical engineering. I think what first sparked my interest was just problem solving. It, it was really fun to see an issue or a problem or a puzzle and figure it out. That's what I liked about building computers in high school is you have all these little parts and you put them all together and then all of a sudden your computer doesn't start and it's like, well, why won't it start? So just a, uh, just a lot of curiosity. Um, and I think I was told at the time that that studying engineering could help make a positive change in the world. And I think that when I was 18 and picking a major, that definitely inspired an interest to formally go into engineering. Yeah, that's awesome. I know a lot of engineers are also very artistic and musical. So definitely a lot of people who share those kinds of yeah. attributes and 
I myself am a violinist, so I I feel you there in terms of uh, integrating the artistic part into um yeah. And so you you got your PhD this this spring. Congratulations! Very Thank exciting. You. And so as your PhD, I, I I read your dissertation last night, and you shout out a lot of your mentors who were integral to getting you where you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about them and what they taught you? Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the greatest joys about doing a master's or a PhD program are, are the advisors that help mentor and guide you along the way. I would say that all three of my primary advisors have had a tremendous influence on my development as an engineer and as an activist and a scholar and and a human being across the past five years. Dr. Michelle Bothwell is my major advisor in, in environmental and chemical engineering. And she teaches social justice at Oregon State University. She works on difference power and discrimination education. She works on gender and racial equity education for faculty. And she absolutely just was so patient and also just held such a passion for doing this work. I remember one of the things that she that she taught me that I've always kept close to me is, you know, I was kind of nervous teaching my first course, helping to teach engineering and social justice, which is a class we have at Oregon State. And she said, I've been doing this for years and I know I I will mess up and I'm going to mess up. And all I can do is say, sorry, learn and keep going. And you're not going to be perfect and you'll never be perfect. You know, and she's like, I've been doing this for years and I still constantly mess up. And I, I, and, and I will keep doing that because we're all imperfect. And that really gave me permission to know that not everything I do, and I'm sure you know a lot of a lot of engineers, and particularly in education and in, and in uh, college. You know this this notion of perfectionism, and you know I just got to do it right. I'm not always going to do it right. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm very wrong. <laughs> in fact, Michelle also taught me um, just a lot of uh, humility and you know my own ability to to you know say sorry and to to yeah. Anyway, Michelle is great. Another mentor uh, that really comes to mind is Dr. Quo Lee Driscoll, who is the my queer studies advisor. So in my PhD, I not only took all the courses in environmental engineering to get a PhD in environmental engineering, but I also completed all of this coursework in women's studies, gender studies, and queer studies towards a doctoral minor in that program. I would say that this was the most transformative education that I've ever received. And I was not the same person walking in those doors to leaving after having this gift of education in queer studies and in women's studies and gender studies. And honestly, you know, this, this goes back, but the whole reason I, I came into this work is I actually did my master's at Oregon State University. And I'd never taken a course in women's studies or queer studies or anything. And I actually emailed Quo Lee because Dr. Driscoll was teaching a course on introduction to queer studies, right? And it was just, it was an undergraduate course. And I emailed and I'm like, hey, I can't register for this right now because of 
like how my how my school is funded, but I'm so interested. Is there any way I can sit in the back or look at some readings? And Dr. Driscoll, just with big open arms, was like, you can just come, you know, just come to class, come to this class for free. Just, you know, attend and you can participate. And it just blew my mind to just learn all of this stuff about gender and sexuality and bodies and power and and race and society and government and all of this stuff, even in just one introductory course, it it changed the trajectory of my life and ultimately helped lead me to what I study today. And then one last academic mentor who is also my advisor, Dr. Devlin Montfort, uh, was the one who kind of gave me the confidence to apply, you know, and this is this is what we all need for those of us in underrepresented or marginalized communities is a professor who literally says, you should apply for a PhD. You should apply to come back and do a PhD. Just hearing those words was really the, the deciding factor, having someone literally invite me. Yeah. So I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been here today without it. So those, those three people were, were huge for me. That's amazing. Yeah. And so much of that meshes with your idea to make use engineering to make the world a better place and fits really well into our next question, which I wanted to talk about your PhD research, because you talk about you mix queer studies and environmental engineering in a really interesting way, I think. So you studied the experiences of transgender and non gender nonconforming students in engineering and computer science. And so this is not a field that I've seen a lot of work in, and I imagine you are pioneering this completely new. So what led you to investigate this topic? Yeah, it is, you know, there, there's a real clear path. There's a, you know, there's a little trajectory on how that idea kind of formed. It came to fruition. So I mentioned before I did my master's at Oregon State University, I did my master's while working at an engineering job and, you know, sometimes workplaces do sponsor employees to get higher education to then bring back to help the, you know, the company or the agency, you know, kind of fill that need. And so that's why I was at Oregon State University doing my master's in environmental engineering. And there were some electives that you could take some engineering electives and there was a course that was really interesting to me. It was called Engineering Education Research with Dr. Devlin Montfort. And I knew nothing about engineering education research. This was a completely new topic to me. And it's actually a fairly young academic field in general. I just didn't know anything about it. And I was looking at the course description and it was about how engineers teach, how engineers learn, and about engineering colleges and you know, because, you know, I, I realized that engineers teach engineers who then become the engineers who accredit engineering schools to teach engineers. It's unique in higher education that we kind of have this whole pillar to ourselves from, from the bottom to the top. It's all engineers. And so it makes sense that we should start to study how we best teach and learn engineering. And I took that course because I was like, well, I know in my position, I work with a lot of shop floor operators. I work with a lot of interns. I work with a lot of people and we're all kind of teachers in a way that, and anytime I see something I don't know a lot about, you know, it's kind of, kind of want to learn about it. 
And in that course, I was just blown away at the level of depth that people are studying topics not only related to conceptual learning and understanding of complex topics and how we can teach them in a classroom, but about gender equity in the classroom, around racial equity, around social justice, around disability. There are people working on these things, on war, on climate change, and how they relate to education and how they relate to engineering profession. Dr. Devlin Montfort actually is in this whole realm of engineering philosophy and engineering epistemology, which is this tiny little research area where people are like, what is engineering? You know, what does it mean to engineer something? Where does this word, what does this word really mean? Uh, I find that fascinating. But, but what really stuck out to me was that at this time, this was 2015, not a single paper that I could find and not a single article that I had read in that class and in my early exploration into that field, even acknowledged, even acknowledged that gender is more complex than just men and women, not a single thing. And this was very different than the queer studies class I'd just taken and all of the friends I made there who have become lifelong chosen family for me where gender is just at a baseline understood within the queer community as being more than a spectrum, right? It's a constellation. There are so many different identities. There's so many different ways to embody. And on top of all that, in 2015, I personally was identifying as non-binary. I was in this phase of like really great gender exploration and freedom. I was using they, them pronouns exclusively. And so I was in this class and I was like, I don't see me or my friends in this research anywhere because there's nothing about gender inequity in women's experiences that speak to the experience of being completely invisible. We know a lot and have heard a lot about what it's like to be men and women in engineering, but there was no outlet to speak about what it means to not even be acknowledged to not have any scholarship opportunities, to not have your pronouns ever used or acknowledged at all, right? So honestly, seeing nothing written on the topic, that's what made me want to investigate the topic. I saw a huge research gap. And ultimately, that's the goal of a researcher is when they see a hole, you try to fill it with knowledge and you do that knowledge through research. So that's what led me to investigate this topic. So when I applied for a PhD, I specifically wrote, like, I want to work with these people who I know. I, I had already met Dr. Michelle Bothwell, Dr. Quilly Driscoll, and Dr. Devon Montfort. And I was like, I really want to work with these people because I feel like they know what I've already talked about. And I want to write a research project to explore transgender, gender nonconforming, non-binary student experiences to help fill in this hole that is just, just wide. And so we wrote a National Science Foundation grant and we got the grant to, for a three-year study to do just that. And not only is it important to fill in this gap because it's, it's, it's missing and, and we exist, students exist. They're there right now. However, we know that there have been more anti-trans legislation bills in 2021 
not only submitted to state legislators, but passed. More anti-trans bills have passed this year than in the past 10 years combined. Now in 2015, 2016, this was starting to even bubble up. For the past five years, the number of trans people murdered has increased every single year. And I want that to sink in, that the rate of murders is increasing. So while there are TV shows and media that are increasingly acknowledging things, the the TGNC community is still in great need for beyond recognition, for actual material support, and for a lot of this violence to stop. And one of the violent things in society is invisibility. So in another way, this is to try to help mitigate the harm that was done. And actually, in the process of of writing this this grant, a engineering and computer science student named Scout Schultz at Georgia Tech um, passed away, uh, died, um, and a lot of people contributed to suicide by cop. They were a non-binary campus activist and wrote frequently about negative experiences in their program. And they um, they really inspired me to take this up because there are students who don't, you know, what, what avenue did we have to understand Scout's experiences as a non-binary computer science student and what had gone on? Do we know anything about how their peers might have or might not have treated them? What have we done as engineers to, to look and say, what do we as a profession owe to gender equity beyond, you know, the mainstream and quite oppressive binary of only recognizing men and women? So all of these things led me to investigate the topic that became my dissertation. Yeah, that's such a, I don't even know what to say, like such a beautiful and complex and deeply sad um experience but I'm I'm so glad you did this work because I know myself and a lot of my friends when we heard about this we felt very seen Mm -hmm. and so as you say like invisibility is definitely a form of violence against trans and gender non-conforming people so just even putting us on the page is absolutely helping to mitigate that yeah so in the course of your research can you share some of your main findings with us and did anything surprise you while talking to these students Yeah, I I would love to talk a little bit about some of the results. So, you know, we structured it as multiple phases, right? We had a large survey. I sent this, this, you know, it's more of a questionnaire, you know, that that gets into language choices. Is it a survey? Is it a questionnaire? Um, Yeah. (laughs) uh, You know, uh, it was a large questionnaire. It was an outreach questionnaire. And I sat and worked with some uh, undergraduate students and every undergraduate researcher that we hired on it, we made sure identified within the TGNC community. And for listeners, um, you know, I I don't know if I explained, but TGNC is the acronym for transgender and gender nonconforming. And it's a, it's a specific community and there's a specific acronym. So we made sure that TGNC students were involved at every step of the way from helping us review the NSF proposal for funding to designing the outreach questionnaire to helping to interpret the results 
to participating in follow-up interviews, to workshops, um, because the, the people who are the foremost experts on what it is like to be a transgender, non-binary, or gender non-conforming undergraduate engineering or computer science student are those students themselves. They are the experts. So we wanted and strived and made sure to design the study so that they were involved at every step of the way. So we had a large outreach questionnaire. We had an online group where participants could help provide feedback. And we additionally did a lot of interviews. You know, from my own experiences as a uh, queer engineer, I would say that a lot of the things I heard, I, I, intuitive, I, I intuitively felt some of the things because of just my own life experience and my friends and my peers. I would say the biggest surprise actually was the backlash that the study got, but I'll talk about that a little bit later. But suffice to say, there were a lot of people who were not very happy that this was being studied. But some of the things that we did find were geographic differences between student experiences. So students on the East and the West Coast having differences in experience and uh, in engineering, in different levels of enjoyment and believing in their long-term career opportunities compared to Southern and Midwestern states. And that actually meshes with a lot of research that shows um, disparate health outcomes and disparate mental health outcomes, depending on where trans and gender nonconforming people live. I have a brilliant and magnificent cousin who just graduated high school and he's in Arkansas. In Arkansas, just passed one of the harshest anti-trans bills that exist. Now, the mental and emotional weight on that and then the subsequent waves of bullying that will occur on college campuses is, is a nightmare that many people cannot understand. However, where I'm at in Washington State, nothing of the sorts happening, right? There's trans flags up and down my neighborhood. So the geographic differences and political differences on where students live can have a giant impact on, on their perception and their inclusion in their campus environment. However, to all of these that we found in the large data, of course, there's like when you have inter interviews, right? I was talking to a student who is in the South and she was having wonderful time, right? <laughs> and she had a great friends and she felt included in her sorority and she felt very seen um, with her friends, right? So, you know, it's it's complex, but those are, you know, there's the, that's the difference between personal interviews and large data, which was another surprise I had. Just the surprise you have when calling someone in it and it defies your expectations. You're like, what? You know, you're, you're, you're trans and you're out and you're in this state that I would assume wouldn't be inclusive and they're having a fabulous time. Um, and then there's differences between men, women, and non-binary people within the TGNC community, especially around professional dress standards. I think this is one thing that should be, honestly, the feminist imperative of groups like SWE is we have to just get rid of professional dress standards, right? If I want to wear a hoodie and sweatpants, what is wrong with that? <laughs> but but on, on, a, on a very specific note, professional dress standards are so gendered, right? 
I think we, right. it's it's just beyond gendered into two different outfits. There's two different professional dress standards. And the the group of students who expressed a lot of discomfort with it were the non-binary students, magnitudes more than the other students, uh, the men and women in the TGNC community. Because yeah, <laughs> it kind of intuitively makes sense. Oh, I guess a men's suit and a women's suit, non-binary students will find themselves caught in a double bind of kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't. And then professional dress standards are just overall for a community that largely is kind of centered on the free expression and recognition of gender. Rigid professional dress standards are hard for everyone. One one student said that they had a time at a career fair where they just actually chose what they really wanted to wear and they had someone laugh at them, um, a potential employer. Another thing that we found were the existence of counter spaces. Now, Z. Nicolazzo is a researcher who has done a lot of work on TGNC counter spaces. Um, And what this is, is when you don't have inclusion or recognition or a belonging to the primary space, right? Your engineering building, your engineering clubs, your engineering groups, a counter space will emerge. Think about it as pouring water down a hill, right? It may turn left, it may turn right, depending on where where it best flows. So students are going to find space and success, but TGNC students form counter spaces to have aid between each other, to care with each other, to support one another. These are heterogeneous groups. It's not all just non-binary students all together. It's people forming close familial relationships with other students who affirm and recognize their gender and their true selves and who do that likewise in return for other people. So constellations of groups online and offline, on campus and off campus, cis and trans, binary and non-binary, but but overall the students had networks of very close people to them. And actually being online is actually other research has found before and we found it ourselves. TGNC individuals and students are online more than their other peers, partially because when you're online, it's very easy to not be misgendered. It's easier to be recognized. And for a community that is so small, right? Some studies say roughly 1% or less of the U.S. population. Online is where you can meet people. And in, in, in a lot of the interviews, a lot of people, a lot of students said that being online and learning online is where they first really came to be and made a lot of their friends. Yeah. So it does take a whole community of support And many of these students are very engaged in social justice and in student groups on their campus. Many are are just very engaged and active on their campus. And real quickly, I guess at the end, the, the surprise I got was nearly immediately after launching my survey, I started to get emails back from people saying, I think this research is inappropriate. I don't think engineers should be involved in in this social justice stuff. I mean, it was honestly the same sort of backlash we see in society towards civil rights for for LGBTQ people. Um, But some of them got really nasty, right? Some people went all the way through the study in the survey, filling it with hate speech. And we had to spend 
some pretty painful time separating hate speech out from the actual responses, which became, I guess, very difficult. And one person even made it all the way through the in- into the interview phase and then to, on the call for the interview just proceeded to, to say hateful things. So and, and this email only went out to engineers, right? So I think the other thing is there's a lot of work to be done because there was a lot of very, very hateful language from what I can only assume are engineering students, the peers of the students that I wanted to hear from saying very, very harsh things. And that was something that in the study came out. A lot of students said that there was a toxic culture in engineering, a toxic culture of straightness, of whiteness. Uh, disengagement from social justice, and that we really need to tackle some of these core cultural issues because trans students are not the problem to be solved. The problem to be solved is the oppression that they are facing. And this came out to us pretty loud and clear in the research too. Yeah, that's, I mean, very sad that like you got so much hate, but I imagine also as as a queer researcher yourself, that must be very difficult to have to sift through the, that hatred. So um, I'm sorry you had to deal with that. Oh, no, it's, I, you know, it was, it was uh, from a computer screen, right? You know, it's, um, you know, it doesn't discount it, but, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to find a way to, to, to write some sort of research article to talk more about it, but, you know, trying, trying to, trying to write that and uh, figure out how to present that data. Um, because I think that that's, that's the best way to do it is to try to just shed light on it. Absolutely. And I imagine that, I mean, even if that kind of meshes with what you said about trans students spending a lot of time on the internet, that even if you get transphobic hate on the internet, it's it's harder to, it's like you said, it's from a computer screen. It's, 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 maybe you don't take it as personally as if somebody yelled at you in person. So. Yeah, ex- I mean, and it's all uh, it's all real life, right? We're all <laughs> we're all yeah. we're all so you know that that's the other tough thing is we're all living all the time, and it doesn't really make it better if someone makes a, you know, for me they there was a lot of like uh, anti-Semitic hate. <laughs> I mean, there's there's yeah. there's a lot to dig into, but you know, for me it it, it it's only slightly better when someone says an anti-Semitic thing to me online versus in person. There's a great book by Angela Nagel called uh, Kill All Normies. And it's about uh, culture wars online on 4chan and Tumblr and all of this. So there's people who have like studied and read specifically into a lot of this. Oh, gosh, that's a whole wormhole in itself. It's very (laughs) interesting stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, it does translate to real life violence. At the same time, we've seen how many mass shootings that have origins in the dark places on the internet where w- whose speech was mirrored a lot. And these are largely tech communities, right? These are largely very white male communities. So I think it is something that at some point, you know, a different podcast, different day, but we do need to talk about the cultures which can emerge and do emerge online and how that does affect our students. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly with online learning, I imagine different challenges have arisen from that. Mm -hmm. So in your research, you talk a lot about uh, the different communities that uh, trans and gender non-conforming students have formed to address their needs, uh, communities of peers. But in your your opinion, there must be some needs uh, of TJNC students that institutions are not meeting. 
what are those and what are some ways you'd like to see institutions like SWE or like universities change to better support their TGNC students and members? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the reason, so, so the framing of the study was through resiliency and how are you finding success? How are you finding support? What are your greatest joys? Because that is a really good way to find where the institutions are failing, right? Is because again, water is going to flow downstream. I start with the basic assumption that TGNC students are not the problem to be solved and that they are finding success, that they are resilient, that they are flourishing, but large, but perhaps without institutional support. So, I mean, first of all else is recognition, recognition that gender minorities in engineering and you know, don't, don't get me wrong, engineering is roughly 80% men, depending on department and institution. But gender minorities, minorities include non-binary students, full stop. Underrepresented groups in engineering is not just women. It, it is a constellation of women, people who are trans, who are non-binary, who are gender non-conforming. Gender is more complex and gender underrepresentation is more complex. Gender non-conforming people, right, are on an axis of, of difference where gender conforming people benefit more, right? And But even more than that, trans and non-binary people are a sliver of the population, but yet have no formal structure in engineering for support. And rather than creating a new structure, I really think that SWE, whose whole mission is gender equity, can really provide a big umbrella to bring in all those who want to come in. And so, but that also applies to institutional efforts around gender equity. It's an, it's one thing to have women's programming and women's lounges and women's scholarships at your institution or in SWE, but what does it look like when we can make a bigger umbrella, when we realize gender is more complex, not to discount women's experiences. I myself identify as a gender non-conforming woman not to discount experiences of women like myself, but to think who else can be brought into a big tent really for shelter and resiliency against what we can all identify, which is a largely cisgender male hegemony. You know, nearly 80% are, are specifically men, right? So we can all come together and learn and share community. And that does happen in some colleges and it doesn't happen at some. So we need to think of who's falling for the cracks when we define gender equity as just men and women. We need to be a big tent. And we cannot assume that TGNC students necessarily want to be in an LGBTQ group. In my interviews, I would say almost half of the students did not want to be involved in an LGBTQ group. There's a lot of historical and ongoing tension and exclusion of trans and non-binary people from lesbian, gay, bisexual, and queer spaces. It's not all, it's not all, uh, you know, it's not, no one's a monolith, right? So having multiple opportunities, if a non-binary student wants to get involved in SWE, I'd say we should let them. And the same if that non-binary student wants to get involved in an LGBTQ group like OSTEP, perhaps that's where they want to be. but. And further than that, um, financial aid, right? 
the rate of poverty for trans and gender nonconforming people in the United States is roughly three times the poverty rate than the national average. And it gets even more sharp for communities of color. And why is this? It's because of the oppression, right? A lot of students are going to be without family support, are going to be without, you know, the same sort of support that a lot of students enjoy, not just first generation students, but a lot of students are going to be coming from a very hard place, struggling to find housing. I myself slept in a van for the beginning of my PhD, looking for safe and inclusive housing. And that's hard to admit as someone who was in their late 20s, but that is the reality for a lot of people in the queer community. So financial aid, right? Assistance, housing, these bread and butter issues are really the issues. You can have pronouns in classes all you want, but if a student can't afford to come to class, you've lost that student. Students in the study also overwhelmingly wanted social justice education in education on gender diversity to be embedded within engineering programs. So what this looks like is not having an engineering curriculum that just only talks about engineering. We have to talk about the issues of that are facing the queer community, that are facing communities of color, and that intersectionality that are facing our queer communities of color. Um, when I mentioned that the violence and murder rate um, against trans and gender nonconforming people in the United States, that's almost all people of color. And on top of it, uh, yeah, just friendship and inclusion. A lot of students said it would make their day if a professor reached out to them or if their peers reached out to them and invited them to things and just became their friends and started really forming those bonds. So, yeah, I think there's that at the end of the day, friendship is just something huge that we can offer to the TGMC people in our lives and in our communities. Yeah, that's such a great answer, because, I mean, especially on both institutional and like personal things that we all can do. And I think thinking about like Pride Month, yes, it's about being happy and being proud of who you are, but it's also about fighting for the things that queer people do need, like housing, like you say. So, yeah, thanks. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I would just say to every institution that put a pride flag on their thing, where have you been as these bills have passed? Where were you when three anti-trans bills passed into law in the United States in 2021? Where were you? What did you say? What did you do? So, yeah, this pride, yeah. a lot of us are just feeling fed up, right? You know, so yep. it's like, okay, Pepsi, where were you? Where were you in Arkansas? Yeah. Where were you in Tennessee? Where were you in Texas? Where where are you in these states? Yeah, if, if you're going to use the imagery of the LGBTQ community, it, it can't just be a, a fun yeah. Twitter icon. It actually has to be backed up with real work. What is SWE doing for students who are going to be under the brunt of these laws? I, that's that's a, a question. really good question. It's a really good question. <laughs> I would love to get an email and hear what SWE is going to actively do to help, you know, those on college campuses in states where these bills are being passed or to lobby against it, right? That's that's what that's what it looks like. It's not about pronouns and flags. I mean, it is, but at the end of the day, structural violence is happening and that also has to be addressed and funding and financing, but also at the end of the day, pronouns and friendship too. So it's, it's kind of all the above. Yeah. We, we need all everything we can get all yeah. the allies all the time. Yeah. 
So I want to finish off by talking about your, your work in labor organizing, because I think that's really also really relevant to your work in collective liberation of like against like gender, the gender binary and also, you know, organizing your, your community. So in your time at Oregon State, you led the coalition of graduate employees and you currently work as a labor organizer. So what was that experience like and how has your work in labor organizing changed how you view the engineering field? Because A lot of engineers are not uh, very involved in labor. Yeah. Yeah, engineers are often, you know, semi-managerial and often not unionized. Um, you know, definitely a lot of times are, are seen or classified as like middle management. At Oregon State University during my PhD, that was the first time I've ever been eligible to join a labor union. And I didn't find too much community within my actual engineering program. In fact, almost all of my friends were in women's studies and queer studies and in the labor union. I was like, how do I make friends, <laughs> right? Where do I meet people? And our labor union was very good and had a big tent approach. We had an LGBTQ caucus there. And I got involved in one of the first things this labor, our labor union pushed for was all-inclusive transgender healthcare for all of our employees, uh, our 1,800 graduate employees at Oregon State University, including engineers, right? <laughs> engineering students and engineering researchers. And we won and we kept winning and we kept fighting and winning increased pay, right? Increased health benefits for trans people, paid maternity and paternity leave, expanded family leave, visa and DACA reimbursement for, for those needing to pay for documentation and stuff, housing assistance, hardship fund grants, uh, anti-racist education, right? Pushing and winning on all of these things, a real force of people power from the bottom, really trying to lift up all boats. And it was inspiring because it was more than just words and education. Labor unions are actual entities that exist by and for employees and members of the community to make material differences. And so it just changed my life. I'd never been a part of something like that. And I'm the outgoing president of our labor union and it has been transformative. So while I was doing all this engineering work, I was also getting increasingly involved and embedded in, in our labor union. And I found a real passion for it. I mean, issues like favoritism, long hours, shifting job duties, pay inequity across race and gender affect engineers just as much as any other. And I really think looking at labor unions and the models there and joining the labor movement is a substantive way to move from words to action. It's one thing to say, oh, we need to end the gender pay gap. How can we do that? unionizing, right? Getting a firm, established, written, negotiated wage scale that's the same for all employees across the board. And that is tied to longevity and not to, you know, favoritism in terms of raises or promotions. So everyone deserves a union in their workplace. And I think engineers do too. And it really, you know, when I, I graduated, I, I, you know, sent out a lot of applications to engineering companies, to, to higher education and to labor unions. And labor union is where, you know, the people who interviewed me and, and offered me a spot. And so I'm, I'm happy to be pivoting towards the labor movement because if we're going to handle the issues of climate change and 
the monumental tasks facing our society, we're going to need every single worker on board. Um, you and me and everyone listening is going to have to be on board. And we're going to have to realize that where we spend 40 plus hours a week is a huge part of social justice and social injustice. And we have to link our struggle to other people and do material actions to shift our society. So that's what excites me about labor unions and, you know, issues of healthcare and pay. We can all get behind making the world a better place through equalizing those things. Yeah, that's so inspiring. I'm so impressed with your work in labor organizing. I mean, personally, I've been thinking a lot about like why engineers aren't in unions. And I think unions, as you mentioned, are also a really important force for uh, driving engineering ethics. They can say no to projects that are unethical or that um, don't meet the needs of people who are going to be served by those projects. So I think that's such an important well, way. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, you know, and there's this fabulous, there's this fabulous research by Aaron Seck out of University of Michigan. Um, it's called, it's, it's describing, I think the, the chapter is called the misframing of social justice, how ideologies of meritocracy and detachment and depolitization hamper engineers' ability to think about social injustice. It's like got a long chat title. It's a book chapter. But Erin Seck writes in, in her research about how engineers, we're, we're cultured and we're trained in education to see ourselves in our work as, oh, I just build the bridge. The racial inequity about where bridges are built and who gets access to these bridges and who makes the concrete for these bridges, right? Like those inequities don't matter. I'm here to design the bridge. Right, right. That, that sort of thing hampers our ability to say, oh, well, you know, sure, I'm getting paid less or they're getting paid more or whatever, but there's surely nothing we can do. This is just a natural result. So, you know, there's some cultural things that I think hamper engineers' ability to often get involved in and take take steps towards social justice. Yeah, this is so interesting because I actually did an independent study on engineering ethics and culture this past semester. And these are like all the things that I was talk thinking, talking and thinking about, but I couldn't find any readings on it. So oh, I will well, definitely connect with you to, later. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, awesome. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, what a great, what a great connection and, and field to be thinking about. I had no idea that so many other people were also uh, thinking about these kinds of issues and doing this kind of work. Yeah. I love it. I had my mind blown when I realized that people were writing about this stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. What a, what a, that's like a great moment where you're like, wow, other people are having the same thoughts <laughs> as I'm having. <laughs> yes. Awesome. So yeah, for our, for our last question, I wanted to ask long-term, like in your whole career, what are your professional goals as an engineer, as an organizer, as an activist, and what changes would you like to see uh, and how do you have any advice for the people that are trying to make that happen? So, yeah, long term, you know, I've spent 14 good years in engineering and that is, you know, just always going to be a part of me. And I'm still involved with the International Journal of Engineering, Social Justice and Peace. We're having our 15th conference online um, later this week. It is a fabulous community of activist organizers, engineers, and those close to engineering. Right now, I am in labor organizing. I work with grocery workers, with healthcare workers, building strong unions in their workplace. 
because I think we really got to build from the bottom in society. And I, I am so thrilled every day to be working with, with people on some issues that, you know, as an engineer, I never faced and, but are just so common in our society, just not having healthcare, having mandatory overtime, having, you know, unsafe working conditions. You know, these are things I've seen, but, but being able to work with it is just, uh, I, I feel very gracious. What changes would I like to see over the course of time? Climate change. We cannot be quiet about climate change. This year is set to be yet another record dry year and record wildfire year here in the Pacific Northwest and on the West Coast. And this problem is going to keep continuing. Study after study after study come out and say that we are rapidly approaching a point of no return and a point of a runaway system. And for for those who don't know a runaway system, if you're having your chemical engineering plants set up and you get a parameter wrong and you get a runaway system, right? It it just it it exacerbates, right? Every every iteration of your process increase it's an exponential increase, right? But that you can't stop it. It's a, it's like a runaway train. That's about to happen to our climate if we don't really get things controlled by 2050. It will be a runaway train and then nothing we can do will stop the warming of the of the planet. And you know, we all know it's happening. And we all know why it's happening. It's the production of a lot of unnecessary things and it is fossil fuels. But we're going to need every single person on board. We're going to need every single worker. We're going to need a supermajority, over 50%, over 60% of engineers, of scientists, of grocery workers, of workers in hospitals, of factory workers across the globe to make the changes that we need to make drastically to cut and permanently change our relation to the planet and to the environment and to write, uh, you know, emitting carbon into the atmosphere. We are rapidly running out of time. And this is the issue that as an environmental engineer and as a human being in this society is very close to my heart. We're going to need a lot of work to make that happen. So that is why I am a labor organizer. Because if we do not build power and we do not build unity, what can we do? I and it, the answers aren't even that complex. How do we do it? Well, first, let's look at some unnecessary stuff. Plastic cups. Do we need any more plastic cups made out of petroleum oil in the ground made into single-use plastic cups that then get recycled? No. Shut down those factories. But how do we shut them down in a way where it, it is equitable and it's inclusive? And that's where labor unions and getting workers on board getting scientists on board all together is needed to solve these issues. We could shut down the plastic cup factory overnight. And guess what? If you don't have a cup to drink water with, ask me, I have a couple cups. I'm sure that there's cups around. Same with straws, right? And these look like little things, but let's start there. Let's start chopping out those things. At a certain point, we're going to have to, not even that, right? Lithium ion batteries. We can't make unlimited lithium ion batteries. So I don't know. So so long-term climate change is what I hope engineers and everyone in society 
really take bold steps for so that our children and our children's children can survive on this planet. Absolutely. And engineers have such a big role to play. So we can help get there if we just work hard enough. Yeah, we can pull the levers of industry, especially coming from chemical engineering. We could overnight change the trajectory of this planet if we were organized enough to do it. So I think I think we'll leave it there. Organize, organize yourselves. Let's let's fix this climate change thing. Yeah. And, and, and with, and with all issues, right. Conversation uh, change is made by a thousand conversations, whether it's gender inequity, whether it is climate change, a thousand conversations and relationships form the basis of gender justice, climate justice, and workplace justice. So keep having conversations. And, you know, I hope everyone out there who feels strongly about any of these things or wants to advocate for inclusion knows that conversations are the basis of all change. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk to people. Gotta, gotta talk to people. That's so important. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's so simple, but it's so profound. I, I'm I'm feeling very inspired. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No problem. I mean, and that's, that's, uh, you know, I, I love if, if, um, if I do return to engineering education, which, you know, if, if I do return to teaching engineering, which I, I did love one thing I'm learning a lot in labor is just, there is a method to getting people on board in organizing and having a structured organizing conversation, right. To bring people on because uh, we're all moved by conversations. So having those conversations with intentionality is important. Yeah. I love organizing. I could talk about it all day, (laughs) But, but thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. That was such a great conversation. So much take away from it for everyone listening. So I'm so glad you were able to join us. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I, I look forward in, to, to hearing the rest of the podcast in this series. And if anyone's listening out there and wants to get in touch, yeah, just send me an uh, email or reach out. I'd love to, I'd love to chat. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I am Alexa Jacob. And from all of us at Sweet, thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Remember to head to we21.swe.org to learn more about and register for this year's conference. 